0: Okay, so uh, tonight we want to think about uh, the concept of heresy, uh, false teaching, heterodoxy, uh, because it's background to what I want to look at uh, next uh, week, which is Irenaeus uh, of Lyon and his response to a particular heresy called Gnosticism. So tonight what I want to talk about really falls into two kind of uh, themes. One is just the general subject of heresy. Uh, What is heresy? Uh, How does the New Testament understand it? And then we uh, uh, will kind of set ourselves up for next week by looking at Gnosticism, which is one of the earliest heresies that the church had to face. It has uh, contemporary significance uh, because there are people today, we would tend to describe them as New Age, uh, who really kind of fall into this category? Uh, there's one person in particular, a man named Eckhart Tolle, uh, T O L L E, uh, who I'll talk about, and he would have fit perfectly in the second century in terms of his uh, belief system. But let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of another night and for the privilege of thinking about a scripture. And the early church and its response to challenges in its day help our time to be informative, but not only informative, but also helpful uh, for us in our day, uh, that we might walk according to the truth. And we ask these mercies uh, for Christ's sake. Amen. So, uh, the word heresy. um, It's a fascinating word in terms of its uh, history. And I want to spend a few moments just talking about the the Greek word it comes from, what it originally meant, and the way in which it becomes a technical word uh, for the early church. Uh, Our word heresy, uh, spelled H-E-R-E-S-Y, as you all know, um, is a transliteration. That is, it's being taken from a Greek word, but it's not being translated from the Greek word. Uh, we do this with a number of words. So in the New Testament, uh, the word "baptism" is not a translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is "baptismos" or "baptisma," and what we've done is we've dropped off the ending and we've taken it over into English. Um, we haven't translated it. Um, if we, if the word had been regularly translated in in uh, modern English and then early modern English and then Middle English and Anglo-Saxon, right from the get-go some of the problems we've had with that issue would have been avoided because the word means immersion, it means sinking something completely in another liquid. Um, It doesn't mean sprinkling, it doesn't mean pouring, though the the Greek uh, has separate words for those, and it means to take a body and plunge it under, under a liquid. And so uh, to baptize, for instance, in the ancient world, uh, a piece of cloth was to take that cloth and to completely immerse it in the color that you were dyeing it. Uh, The ancients, as far as we know, were not into tie-dye, right? Tie-dye, you don't do that. Um, So that's one example. Uh, Another example would be deacon. Uh, The Greek word is diakonos. Again, we've dropped off the ending and uh, we've taken the word basically over into English. Um, The word bishop, uh, I won't go through the etymology of bishop, but bishop also is not translated. And I know we don't use the word normally in modern English translations. But again, uh, we may have been able to avoid some issues um, if we had translated that word. Um, I won't get into this, but that's a very, very difficult word, I think, to translate. The word that is usually used to translate it is overseer. I I don't like that translation at all. I'm not actually sure how to translate it by one word in English, which is a challenge because you've got to translate it by a word. When I think of an overseer, I think of a guy managing a factory. And that's not what an over... The the Greek word is episkopos. And that's not what an episkopos is doing at all. Um, So the word heresy is, is another word like that. We've taken it from originally from a Greek word. It comes to English via Latin, and then it comes into Old English or Anglo-Saxon, and then Middle English, which is the English of people like Geoffrey Chaucer, and then Modern English, which begins around 1500. And we haven't translated the word. The Greek word is heiresis, H-A-I-R-E-S-I-S, heiresis. And you can hear the way... Heresis, heresy, you can see it's very, very close. And all we've done, again, we've changed the ending. Um, the AI has become an E. That's very common in European languages in terms of a, the vowel shift. And the IS at the ending has become a Y. Um, heresis means a choice. Um, it doesn't. It's used about 20 times in the New Testament. It's never used to mean that. And it's a fairly neutral word. So if I'm uh, sometimes I like going out for a drive. Uh, I find driving relaxing. Not everybody does. My wife doesn't find driving relaxing. Uh, I think driving is great. And you know, sometimes I'll get on a a road. I actually I do this in the city, in Hamilton. You know, I'll be going past a street. I've never been down there before. And I'll just turn down and see what's down there. And uh, I've made a choice, right? I've decided to go down that. Street, uh, generally speaking, that sort of choice is, it's value-free. It has no, it's not negative, it's not positive. And then from there, the word means to choose a particular type of teaching. And it becomes, and this is the way it's used a lot in the New Testament, to mean a sect, S-E-C-T. That is a group of people who have embraced a particular lifestyle or choice of teaching. So, it's used of the sect of the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees emerge around the 200s BC. They're part of a group of people called the Maccabees. You may have heard of the Maccabees. Uh, first Maccabees, second Maccabees are part of the Apocrypha. Uh, the Maccabees were um, Jewish zealots who, want to, who were zealous for the Jewish law over against Greeks who had come in, conquered what did we call Palestine or Israel, and we're trying to uh, bring in Greek cultural ideas, and the Maccabees stood for the Old Testament and for the law, and out of them come the Pharisees. And uh, the the term is used a number of times in the New Testament, the sect of the Pharisees. It's used as the sect of the Nazarenes, uh, the people who have followed the Nazarene, namely our Lord Jesus. And in neither of those cases is it really a negative term. It's used twice as a negative term and only once in our contemporary view or our contemporary usage of heresy. It's used in Galatians 5. And if you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn to Galatians 5. And and then in a minute, we're going to go to 2 Peter. But in Galatians chapter 5, uh, where Paul is listing... Uh, The fruit of the Spirit, but before he does that in verse 22, uh, back in verse verse 19, he introduces the works of the flesh, and that is the works of the old nature, uh, the works of that part of humanity, of a human being that is against God and has an aversion to God and is rebellious. And the works of the flesh... Verse 19, Rev. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, hey, racist, divisions. And here, hey, racist is the tendency that some have, or the 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 event that happens sometimes in the history of the church, where people divide over issues they shouldn't divide over. And, um, for instance, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters have to do with the division in the church because some people said, you know, we, we think the way Paul preaches is, and I'm using a 1920s expression, the bee's knees. It's, it, it's, it, is, it is absolutely fabulous. Paul's our man, and we're taking our lead from Paul. Others said, no, no, we, we think Peter is. And Paul uses the uh, Jewish name for Peter, Cephas. We think Cephas is the man. And some said, no, no, uh, neither of you are right. It's Apollos. And what they were doing was setting up teachers against each other. And uh, a number of years ago, when I first started going to teach at Southern, I used to attend a, a Baptist church called Third Avenue Baptist Church. It was—it was, it was a, had been a very big Baptist church at one point, about 1,000 people. And it was down to about 30 people when I first went there. And they... A number of students went in, replanted it. It's now about seven or eight hundred. It's really a fabulous work. But in the early days, there were a number of people who were very, very strong in favor of John P- John Piper. They loved Piper, and there were other people who were in favor of a man named Mark Dever. Some of you may know the name. Uh, Mark Dever is uh, a Baptist pastor in Washington D.C. has a ministry called Five, Five uh, um, Nine Marks, and uh, in fact the 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 differences between the two—it never came to blows—but the differences between the two were known as there were the Piperites in the church and the Deverites, and uh, they had different views on how to do church, and the views were quite different. And I think the Deverites eventually won out, but uh, whatever the case, uh, well, it never got to the point that they really split over the issue, but it could easily. You know, I—I'm I, I, sure enough of you you know enough about the way the church has sometimes functions that, you know, a certain person is put on a pedestal and the way he teaches and his emphases, and then somebody comes along, he's got different emphases and uh, there can be fights over that. Um, Or sometimes in churches, there can be fights over, as we will see, non-essential issues. Uh, When I first started uh, uh, theological school uh, at the University of Toronto, um, I went to Wycliffe College, and Wycliffe College was a low, low, low Anglican, low church Anglican, and I remember I was introduced to a lot of Anglican history, and part of the, the history of Wycliffe College was in the 19th century when a number of r- very ritualistic things were being brought back into the Anglican church. The, uh, the low church Anglicans stood for the preaching of the gospel, uh, plainness simplicity and I remember somebody telling me now look at look at the uh, the table the Lord's table uh, which would, they had a table in the church because we used to uh, the uh, chapel because they used to have uh, uh, weekly communion and they said do you'll notice there's no candles on the table yeah okay oh yeah that's interesting well he, they said if they had they we did have candles that would mean we'd be high church Anglicans but we're not High church anglicans were low church anglicans. And you can imagine the battles. There were battles, actual battles in the 19th century. Should we put candles on the Lord's table? Uh, Etc. And um, maybe at the time it was important, but looking back, you could say, like fighting about candles on the Lord's table. I mean, really. Uh, so uh, what Paul's talking about here are people who divide the church. And there's a number of warnings in the New Testament against such people. They make, they make a mountain out of a molehill. And uh, the, 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 the word knows the what the word does not mean. The word does not mean heresy at this point. It's, it's the idea of, of choosing a certain thing, And differentiating that choice over against others to the point that you make your choice the kind of the prism by which you judge everybody else. And uh, again, there's a number of things in the New Testament about that. Romans 14, uh, one man decides not to eat certain foods, another man uh, feels he can eat all. One man's a vegetarian, Uh, another isn't. Uh, You need to eat... Uh, Eat as unto the Lord, or not eat as unto the Lord. It's uh, don't destroy the kingdom of God for food. Uh, Given the Old Testament background of the certain things you shouldn't eat, uh, you can see why some early Jewish Christian believers might have uh, certain problems with eating uh, bacon, ham, shellfish, uh, shrimp, uh, etc. Now, the first place and the only place in the New Testament... That the Greek word heresis means heresy is Second Peter. And uh, but please note this is not the only place in the New Testament where this concept, the word may not be used, but the concept is all over the, the New Testament. Second Peter chapter two. But false prophets also arose among the people. Second Peter two verse one. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, you'll notice at that point, the word has not been translated. It's been taken from the Greek, and it's been taken right over into English. And uh, I would say the meaning is exactly what the, the, the meaning of the word at that point. Hey, this is the Greek, uh, is a word heresy they were secretly being a destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and what this passage is emphasizing is that there are certain in, in the galatians 5 passage uh, there are people who divide the church over non-essential issues and that doesn't mean they're heretics it doesn't mean they've destroyed the possibility of their salvation here it does Here it means that there are things that you can embrace in terms of teaching that will damn your soul. It takes very seriously the fact that uh, it's not only wrongful living that will bring damnation, but it's also the embrace of certain basic things that are out of sync with the gospel. That if you embrace these teachings, you're no longer a Christian. Uh, what kind of things? And as I said, the New Testament the New Testament puts a great emphasis on walking, obviously, in love, but also walking according to the truth. There is a body of teaching that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples, gives to the apostles, and the apostles are to hand that on faithfully, and that's come down to us. And uh, while we may make certain decisions regarding how we do church, for instance, uh, the order of service that we have, the songs we sing, uh, etc. But there are certain things that we have received that we cannot change. We've received them as a trust from our forebears. Now, this, by the way, runs counter, very counter to our culture. We have received a bequest from the past. We've received an inheritance from the past, and we're not to squander it. We're not to change it. We're to pass it on to posterity, and we're to pass it on unaltered. Uh, what kind of things? Well, um, let me take you to a few. Uh, look at First John chapter 4, First John 4, and I'll read uh, verses 1 uh, to uh, 6, First <clears throat> John 4, verses 1 to 6. Which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever listens knows God. Listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. And here the test is: Do you believe that the second person of the Godhead, whom we describe, as the Lord Jesus Christ, has actually become an incarnate person. Do you believe that Jesus Christ actually embraced our entirety of humanity, that the, God, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, became fully human? He not only took on a body, but He took on a human soul, a human mind, a human spirit, and was fully human. And there are obviously some, and in fact, this will play into what we want to look at with Gnosticism. There were some that John knew who were dividing the church, who were saying, no, the incarnation, there is no way that God could have become a man. And we'll see why they would have argued that in a few minutes. But here, here it's very clear that there's a test. If you don't believe in the incarnation, you're not a Christian. Bottom line, the Incarnation, and please don't generally speaking as evangelicals, our focus is on the cross. It's the cross that we think of as saving us, but there can be no cross. Jesus can't really die if he's not incarnate. He goes through an actual death. The humanity dies. Uh, and uh, that can't happen if he's not fully fully man. He's not fully human. And so the denial of the Incarnation is heresy. Or take a look at Galatians uh, chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. And uh, let me read uh, verse, let me read from 1, chapter 1, 1, down to verse 9. Chapter 1, 1, down to verse 9. that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, and there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to one we preach to, let him be accursed. As we have said before now, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And uh, we'd have to read the whole letter to see what Paul is emphasizing but he's obviously upset. Um, you may want to do this at some point. Uh, uh, read all of Paul's letters at one sitting. <laughs> It'll take you a few hours. Uh, and you, what you'll notice is that when Paul uh, always introduces his letter with a greeting, as he does here, Paul, uh, to all the brothers uh, and all the brothers who are me, greetings to you, the churches of Galatia. And then he'll have uh, some sort of prayer. And then he always has, except here, a thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. He always thanks God. I thank God for you. And he enumerates a number of things. Notice he doesn't do that here. He launches right into the issue. He is so upset with these people. he, he, He bypasses any thanksgiving for them. And immediately launches into the fact that some of them are listening to another gospel. And the gospel, according to Paul, is that at the heart of it is that we are saved by faith alone in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some who've come and said, well, you know, you need to maybe think about getting circumcised. Oh, yeah, faith in Jesus is important. But faith in Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul, Paul will have rightly, will have none of it. In fact, he says, "Even if an angel comes, uh, that the person who embraces that be accursed." It's, it's, uh, the Greek actually is very strong. The, the English plays it down a little. Let him be accursed. Uh, the Greek is, <clears throat> "May such a person be damned to hell." It's a very, very strong language. And uh, there is a gospel. And uh, we are to hold on to it. We're to pass it on. We're not to change it. And it does, you know, we, we can think of, the, say, the reasons for the Reformation. Why did the Reformation take place? Because during the Middle Ages, during that long period of time, particularly from around 1300 to 1500, uh, certain individuals in uh, church authority had changed the gospel. You had to go through a variety of things according to the Pope, or various Roman Catholic bishops. And if you didn't do those things, you couldn't be saved. And the reformers, by God's grace, and to our blessing, rediscover the gospel. And at great cost to themselves, some of them ended up getting burned, like William Tyndale. Um, All of them ended up getting kicked out of their churches, and uh, lost, in some cases, everything. Like John Calvin. Calvin talks about having to flee for his life. Uh, He said on one occasion when he was preaching on uh, uh, 1 Samuel and the passage where David is, one of the passages where David is fleeing from Saul in fear of his life. And Calvin said from the pulpit, and Calvin was very reticent to ever talk about himself. He said, I know exactly what David was feeling because there was a moment in 1534 to 1536 where his... his, uh, Uh, home where he was living, was raided, his rooms were searched, his landlord, who was a Christian, was arrested, burned publicly at the stake, and Calvin barely escaped with his life. And uh, the gospel has come down to us uh, as a heritage from such men. And there is a gospel. It's not anything we want. We can't fill that word with all kinds of stuff. It is a gospel that we are saved by faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, our faith is imputed to us, it's credited to us, as righteousness. And our sins are imputed to Christ. He takes responsibility for absolutely every one of them. And His righteousness that He worked out as a human being is credited to us. So that we as Christians stand before a holy God without fear. Because we are in clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even even in our own good works as a Christian. Um, Or uh, take a look at uh, 1 Timothy again. Uh, It's actually 2 Timothy, sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, Paul is wrestling with false teachers there. And he says this in 2 Timothy 2. And uh, verse 16, 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Paul very rarely names uh, false teachers, but he does here. Uh, Who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." So they have in some way undermined the teaching that there is the resurrection of the body. If you deny the resurrection of the body, you're not a Christian. Uh, the resurrection of the body is absolutely, absolutely central to the Christian faith. Our faith is built on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and buried, was raised on the third day, and he was seen physically in space and time. You know, the, the, the apostles didn't imagine they saw him, and it wasn't the spirit of Jesus that impressed itself that he was still living. They, they ate with him. And I've got no idea of the mechanics of how the resurrection body can eat and digest food. But our Lord Jesus ate fish, right? Broke bread with uh, his disciples on numerous occasions. And the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. What these men are teaching is not exactly clear, but Paul is very clear. Their teaching undermines the resurrection of the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is critical here, that the, the resurrection of the body is central to our hope as believers, not the immortality of the soul. That's often what Christians think, you know, that everybody in the ancient world virtually believed in the immortality of the soul. What they didn't believe in is what modern men and women don't believe in either—that the body we bear, this body, <laughs> your bodies is go- God's going to raise it from the dead. Now I've had people kind of jokingly say, "Well, I'm not really happy with my body," you know. Uh, well, <laughs> it'll be a perfect body. Your body is actually essential to who you are. It's not—it's not—it's not a vehicle that houses the real you. It—it. It, it, In the the biblical understanding, your body and your soul are, first of all, a unity. And so the resurrection of the body is central to God's actions in saving us. So those are a few things. uh, I would argue other issues, the denial of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, John 8, where Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And virtually every translation has, unless you believe that I am he, that is the Messiah. But the Greek actually just says, unless you believe that I am. And it's harking back to Exodus 3, where Moses is told that the name of God is I am who I am. Unless you believe that I am, uh, the deity of Christ is absolutely central to the gospel. The Trinity is central. You could probably sum up on two hands the doctrines that are essential. Now, one of the challenges of the Christian faith is trying to determine, okay, so what is absolutely bedrock? And if you deny that, you're not a Christian. And what are other issues? And usually we talk about essential and non-essential. I don't like that way of talking. Um, I much prefer uh, a model that um, the president of the school that I teach at full time, uh, Al Mohler, has come up with which is what he, he calls it a theological triage, T I T R And you can actually Google, if you Google Moller theological triage, you'll find the article in which he lays out this, this model. And he argues that Christian truths really kind of fall into three categories. There are tertiary truths. they are truths that you personally hold, And your Christian brother who sits next to you in a pew, right here in a chair, may or may not hold those views. They are not views that you have liberty to divide over. You basically have to live with each other and agree to disagree. Um, We've gone through in the last three years some issues like this, the whole pandemic. I knew it would. Uh, When it started, I thought this is going to create problems for us. And uh, should Christians wear masks you know, or not? Should Christians observe social distancing or not? And some Christian teachers came out and said, no, no, uh, the social distancing, the masks, their mandates from the government, we have no calling to obey them. In fact, if we obey them, we're disobeying Christ. And uh, the rhetoric, uh, and I'm sure some of you have been very familiar with it, the rhetoric is, was very disturbing to me. Uh, to me, it bespoke immaturity. It bespoke the, the, the realization that Christians can come to different opinions on these issues, just as Christians have come to different opinions on um, Christian schooling. Um, today, probably my wife and I would come to a different view than we would have done in the 1990s when we sent our kids to uh, Dundana Public School, and then um, uh, Highland uh, High School. They were public schools. Uh, Dundana was great. Uh, we On two occasions, I had problems with the curriculum. And I went into the principal and said, I, I don't like this particular book. And the principal said, fine, we're going to pull it from the class. They'll put it at a certain spot in the library. And if the teacher wants students to read it, they can they can go in there and read it. But we won't have uh, the students uh, Uh, It won't be required. And then when they got into high school, I didn't want the idea of uh, students, my children, going through the sex ed. Uh, If we're going to do that, and we should. It needs to be taught by the parents. I had problems with the whole way things they were teaching. And I just went in and said, "Uh, I don't want my daughter involved in this. And they said, fine, we'll allow her out the class. I'm not sure that will go today. And it's not something I've kept up with in terms of uh, you know on top of what the board of education in Toronto is mandating, but I think today you probably that would be a it might be a real issue, and so in my in my day I remember I remember being at a conference in London and a dear brother came to me we got chatting and we I'd known him for a number of years, and he must have raised he said so how are your kids and he said "Uh, uh, you you're not sending your kids to a public school, are you? I'm not sure what prompted the question. And I say, yeah, yeah, we are, but it's, it's actually a pretty good public school. And, and he, I remember him looking at me, and he, he was horrified. And uh, I got the impression, he didn't come out and say it, but he got the impression that I'd almost denied the faith uh, by sending my kids to a public school. Um, there are m- numerous issues. Uh, when I was first converted, eschatology was a big one. And uh, I happened to be, well, for about 20 years, I had no idea what I was. So I was teaching in a seminary. I finally figured in the mid-90s, I should figure out what I believe about last things. And I read up on premillennialism and uh, pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip premillennialism and historic premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism. And I knew what I wanted to be. I'd love to be post-mill. That is, everything gets better and better. The Lord, there's revival, sweeps the earth. And then when the world is ready, Jesus comes back. I, that sounds fabulous. I just can't find it in the Bible. And uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic millennial. I believe that God will pour out his spirit upon Israel in the latter days, Romans 11, There'll be a massive turning of Israel to the Lord. And, but I don't believe in a literal earthly millennium of Jesus coming and reigning for a thousand years from Jerusalem and so on. And I know I've got texts that are problems with that. Uh, but I think the texts against the premillennial view that Christ will come, there'll be a thousand year reign, then the Antichrist and so on. But <clears throat> Christian brothers differ on that. But I know when I was first teaching, if you weren't pre-mill in the fellowship of evangelical Baptist churches, you were a suspect. Um, You might have even been close to being a heretic. Um, London Baptist Bible College and Seminary was founded in the late 70s by seven very godly, faithful Baptist pastors who felt that what was being taught at Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto, where I was teaching, we were we would teach all views, but we wouldn't come down on one. London came down on one. They were pre-trib, pre-mill, and that was the gospel. Well, Christians have different on this issue, and to be honest, we can belong to the same church. I mean, there are churches. There were churches in the fellowship. Then, if you weren't pre-mill, you couldn't be a member of the church. You definitely couldn't be a pastor of the church. And uh, <clears throat> the scriptures don't, in my mind, do not support that. So there's numerous issues. Um, I'm not in favor of uh, imbibing alcohol at all. And um, I have younger friends. I don't know why a number of younger men in their 30s now, pastors, uh, they'll tell me, you know, we went to this conference. It was great. We went out after for a beer and a cigar. And I'm just rolling my eyes, and not outwardly. I'm just thinking, man, alive, oh you know. But it's a non-issue. It really is a non-issue. Um, 18th century Baptist churches, uh, because uh, water was the way it was, and uh, tea wasn't easily made, uh, they would often serve beer. <laughs> and at the end of the year, they total up expenses. You know, so much spent on beer. Uh, for the year, and I mean, you can come to a numerous functions at uh, West Highland, and you're not going to be getting beer uh, or wine or whatever. But it's it's an issue where Christians have to be free to disagree. And the reality is, there is a multitude of issues like that. And uh, I'm very disturbed in the current context, as I said, where it seems to be for some. It's not enough to hold the gospel and even certain elements of the gospel. I'm getting to uh, uh, secondary issues. You have to have a certain political view. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. And um, so uh, tertiary issues, secondary issues. Secondary issues are where we disagree with fellow Christians. Notice fellow Christians. But it's going to be difficult to build a church together for a variety of reasons. So I am a Baptist, and I don't agree with paedo-baptism. I don't agree with the baptism of babies. I was bapt- I was uh, sprinkled as a baby in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I don't regard that as a genuine baptism. Um, as I said earlier, I think if the word had been translated, I think we would have avoided some problems. Um But you can see where that would be a a central issue. For me, the church is a body of of believers, of those who have understood the gospel, repented of their sins, embraced Christ, and covenanted together to walk as brother and sister. That's the church. The church is not a, a body of families who are raising their children in the faith, and have baptized each of those children. In other words, the infant baptism, baptism is the entry into the church, but it's believer's baptism. It's not infant baptism. And uh, so you can see how that could create tension. I have a lot of friends who are Presbyterian. Um, I teach at a a Dutch reform school in the United States, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, where a man named Joel Beeke is the president. He is a very, very dear friend. When I teach there, I say nothing about my Baptist convictions. And he expects that. And it's only right. I know where the school stands. I'm not going in to create trouble. Um, he actually brings me in to teach on Baptist history because they've got about 300 students now and about 100 Baptists are going there because they appreciate various doctrinal emphases. Um, I'm a Calvinist. I believe that Uh, Regeneration precedes faith. Um, I believe that no one comes to Christ unless the Father uh, draws him, John 6, uh, 44. Um, Not all believe that. Some would believe what we know as Arminianism. Um, I do not believe you can actually, a believer cannot lose their salvation. Uh, There are uh, numerous differences between a Calvinist and people we know as Arminian. Uh, are Armenians Christians? Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of Armenian friends, uh, but I have no doubt. Well, actually, I do. I have a friend who is a Pentecostal pastor, a fabulous brother in um, in uh, Waterloo. About a thousand people in his church, Waterloo Pentecostal, and he's just gone on a missionary trip to Nepal, and uh, very interesting. I. I was very surprised. He came to Southern to do a PhD, and Southern is a it's a Calvinistic Baptist school, and he's a Armenian Pentecostal, and um, he's just a very dear brother. Um, I would have challenges to be part of his church. Um, I'm not a cessationist. I I don't believe all the gifts have necessarily all ceased. Some have apostles definitely, uh, prophets definitely. Um, but even so, I'd have problems with people standing up in the middle of a worship service. I used to go to a charismatic worship service for about five years when I was first converted. Uh, I have problems with people standing up in the middle of a service speaking in tongues, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but these are brothers and sisters in Christ. We disagree on some issues. Those are secondary issues. And then, then, then finally, there are primary issues, and they're the ones I was talking about. And if you, don't, if you disagree on a primary issue, you're a heretic. You're not a Christian. So Mormons, for all the Mormons in the United States who want to claim to be Christians, they're not Christians. When you get a knock on your door, on usually on a Saturday morning around 9 o'clock, and uh, we don't get knocks on our door from these people anymore. I don't know whether they've marked our house. Um, you know, we're just sitting down to have breakfast. Usually on Saturday, my wife will often make pancakes. And you go to the door, and there's two people there, Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm a sucker. Uh, I'll give them as long as they want to stay. And usually I try to get them on to talking about who Jesus is. They want to talk about a variety of other things and and etc. And I've had some interesting conversations over the years. Um, but they're, they're nice people. And I'm sure they're very upright Canadian citizens. They're not Christians. They don't know God. I remember the the talking to one man and he came by himself. It was very odd. And um, uh, he said to me, um, I asked him, I said, do you worship Jesus? And he said, yeah. Oh, I thought, this is interesting. (laughs) I said, do you believe Jesus is God, fully God? No, no, he's a, He is a perfect creature that the Father made. I said, then, either one or two things is is correct. Either you're involved in romantic hero worship, or you're an idolater. I I just said it like that. I thought, you know, we've already got 15, 20 minutes here, if that. And I'm just going to lay it on the line. I mean, if Jesus is not fully God, you're engaged in idolatry, which God condemns. And I said, it's quite clear in the Old Testament, thou shalt not give God's glory to another or worship anything else but the Lord. And he said to, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, if God told me to worship a stone, I would. And at that point, I knew this man has no knowledge. For all that he says he knows God, he doesn't know the living God. God will not give his glory to another. So I've taken a lot more, <laughs> I've taken about 45 minutes here. That's a lot, long. but this is very, this laying out this kind of model is very, very important. Tertiary issues, and I'm sure if we went around room, we could find a number of tertiary issues uh, to disagree on. Uh, secondary issues uh, are issues where we cannot build, where we're fellow Christians, but we will not we cannot. It'll be difficult for us to build together uh, churches. But Pentecostals are brothers in Christ. We pray for them. We ask God to bless them. They're not heretics. We differ with them on the work of the Spirit. Um, and then, uh, and this is one example. Uh, we could think of member of Pado Baptist groups and so on, Charismatics, etc. Uh, and then on primary issues. And there are sects, cults today, that embrace a doctrine that undermines the gospel, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who argue that our Lord Jesus Christ is not fully God, deny the Trinity. Uh, Mormons who've got some weird view that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit used to be human beings like us, and now they've been elevated to Godhood. And if, you were, if you're a Mormon, you're going to get your own world in the universe sometime, and you'll be a god to that world. It's it's very, very odd, and it's it's not the gospel. So having said that, let me stop here, ask if there are any questions. This might occupy the whole time, I know. Yeah, go ahead. Any questions? And then if we have time, I'll turn to looking at Gnosticism.
1: Yeah, you, you, I, I was... I'm surprised you didn't bring this up because I was going to ask the big one. Uh, Mm -hmm.
0: So I
1: know lots of Catholics who I believe are sincere Christian people. And yet I know there are other people that will (coughs) say to me, no, it can't possibly happen. And I I would like to know your opinion on that.
0: So this is my opinion. Um, I remember being in a Bible, uh, I was part of a Bible study for many years. Uh, Nancy was part of it. It grew out of a a campaign called the I Found It campaign by Bill Bright in the 1970s, be the late 70s. And it was called the Tuesday Night Bible Study. And there were about 20, 20 or 30 people that regularly gathered for about 15 to 18 years. And uh, we had one young woman. What was, Do you remember her name? She was from the north end of Hamilton. She was Portuguese uh, Catholic. Rose. Rose, Rose. Rose, right. So one time uh, we were teaching through the Book of Romans. And Rose is a is Roman Catholic and uh, Portuguese background. Lived in what she called the, uh, uh, the, the, the North End Riviera, which was before it got gentrified. She said it was the Hamilton Riviera. And um, we're, we're, we're going through Romans 3 where Paul says, Paul very clearly says uh, that we are saved by faith alone. And I remember looking at Rose and saying, do you believe this, Rose? And Rose says, without a shadow of a doubt, I'm not saved by the Mass. I'm not saved by the Pope. I'm not saved by the saints or by Mary or angels. I'm saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and she still went to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The first person who ever shared the gospel with me, a man named Bill Trues, it was part of the Jesus movement back in the uh, late, it would have been probably around 1969. I I know the exact spot. It was out in front of Ancaster Town Hall that used to be a a drop-in hippie center. There's a movie about that now. I know, I've just seen the, I haven't seen the movie, but, and I remember thinking the guy was completely nuts. And he went on to become a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, he's from what I somebody that my wife knows, who is also a Catholic, goes to a church, and she said he's a gospel preacher. Um, I have a friend who um, is a Syriac Orthodox priest. His name's is John Isak or Haytham Isak, and he's an Iraqi. Comes from where my father was born. We I met him through uh, McMaster University. He was doing a PhD there. And we just had dinner, uh, dinner together on uh, Saturday. And about a year and a half ago, two years ago, his priest removed him from his, his bishop removed him from his parish because the people were complaining, he preaches about Jesus too much. He's always talking about the Bible in his sermons and they're too long. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt in my mind he's a believer. So, so that actually then sort of, I think, illustrates what the problem is
1: is that you've you've got these sort of sort of this thing going on where it's 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 the rituals and the dogma of the church and those people may or may not have a genuine you know a genuine faith in jesus but then you get these the other camp where that is the primary (coughs) focus
0: Yeah, so I think in the Roman Catholic Church, what you have, I think you have genuine believers. Um, I think the higher up you get, it's going to be much more difficult in terms of the hierarchy, you know, uh, bishops and so on. But I think there are genuine believers in the Catholic Church. But in terms of its official dogma, I mean, the official dogma of the Council of Trent is if anyone says that you are saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. So in the official dogma of the Church... They are, they are against the gospel. The God, I am saved by faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it's never faith alone. It's always accompanied by works, but the works don't save me. The works are a fruit of my salvation. But the, Roman, the, Roman, the official Roman Catholic dogma condemns that, still condemns it. And uh, actually, things were a lot easier up until the Reformation. You've got all kinds of people in the Middle Ages who are genuine believers, but be, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church is formed at the time of the Reformation. When the reformers come along and begin to preach the gospel, the Roman Catholic Church responds with what we call the Counter-Reformation and condemns scripture alone, faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Um, but there are still believers there. and I. Um I think it's going to be a challenge for them in in many ways. Um, but I think we can make the opposite mistake that simply because you're in a gospel-believing church doesn't mean you're a Christian. I have a, I have a very good friend. Um, he grew up, he was his father was a pastor. And when he was about 25, there was a it, the church was where they gave an altar call and he went forward. His wife was horrified. His wife didn't know he wasn't a Christian. But he, he he would admit that he had lived a life, that he was living a double life. He really was not a believer. He was a baptized member of a Baptist church. His father was in the Fellowship Baptist pastor in Quebec, but he was not a Christian. And he realized that. So, Any other questions? Uh, as I said, by opening up for questions, we could be a, a can of worms, but... I
1: just found it interesting when you mentioned the passage from Second Timothy about those who thought you were teaching that the resurrection had already occurred. I don't know if you know, but Elam Bible College, which is near Rochester, New York, is a Pentecostal Bible college. In the 1950s, uh, there was a body of the staff and students there who claimed to have already the resurrection body.
0: No, I. Wow. Yeah,
1: and it caused a really extinct in the Ely's uh, fellowship, which is a British Pentecostal. Yeah, yeah. yeah and they had to. They had to, They sent people from Britain and all that to, to straighten this out.
0: Wow, that is yeah. I mean, either either the, either they're you know that either they're arguing that the resurrection body they've already gotten it, which is okay. So. If, yeah, how do you explain people getting sick and dying? Or they're actually arguing that the real resurrection took place when I became a believer and there's no resurrection of the body, which is what I think that what Paul's referring to. But uh that that's I didn't know that. Contemporary yeah, that's yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, let me turn then and uh we've got about 15 minutes and I'll take the 15 minutes. I'll take about 10 minutes to introduce what we call Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I G-N-O-S-T-I-C I S M. Gnosticism. It comes from a Greek word called Gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism basically argues that we are saved by knowledge. But there are three or four things that the Gnostics were they characterized the various Gnostic groups. Uh, Gnosticism starts in the New Testament period. First John is written against Gnostics. Uh, Gnostics had a number of basic, there's about 30 to 40 different groups that have been identified in the first, second, and third centuries. But they they all shared a number of things in common. Number one, they shared a view that the material world was intrinsically evil. Uh, they had what we call technically a cosmological dualism. They were dualists. This, ta- this podium is evil. Uh, chairs. Everything you see around you, your body, it's all evil. It's all part of a world that the true God is going to destroy. They argued that all of this, what we see around us, it was made by a false God. The god of the Old Testament, they would argue, was a false god, a lesser god. Some argued the god of the Old Testament was actually Satan. And they rejected the Old Testament as truth. And thus, things like the resurrection of the body, they denied it. They denied the incarnation. So I think, Paul, I think definitely 1 John is written against early Gnostics, who denied the reality of the incarnation. Um, I think First Timothy, Second Timothy, the one that we were talking about, I think these people are probably gnostic in orientation too. They're denying the reality of the resurrection of the body. Um, but it goes further, it has all kinds of ethical implications. Uh, marriage is taboo. For, if you know First Timothy four, there will come the, the, uh, the spirit expressly says that in the latter days some will come de- deceitful spirits denying marriage. And uh, the Gnostics basically said, marriage and procreation are of Satan. And so they, li- they would live ascetic lives, most of them, were into asceticism. No marriage, no intimacy, obviously, in marriage. It's all wrong. Having children is wrong because you're participating in the work of Satan. If all of this is Satan's work, the last thing you want to do is bring more children into it, etc., so that was a basic, one basic view of Gnostics. The material world is evil. The spiritual world, what's in here, my spirit, is intrinsically good. But not everybody's spirit. So one basic thing is the material realm is evil. The spiritual realm is good. The second thing is that uh, certain people have within them, innately within them, part of God. They're born with a bit of God in them. And I'm being kind of uh, materialistic here, a bit of God. They had uh, Many Gnostics had some sort of idea that somehow in the past, I know this is going to get weird, there was some sort of disturbance within God, and bits of God got broken off and lodged in human bodies. And so some people were in, had a spark of divinity in them. And uh, what happened when you were saved is you realized who you really were. Knowledge. You came to self-realization. Living in here is a bit of God. And the goal of life is for that bit of God to get back to God. And I'm going to, at at death, I finally get rid of this. And my spirit will be reabsorbed into God. And so you've got this very, very completely different view of Christianity, but it uses the same terminology because they also argued, who teaches this? Who who came to teach us this? Jesus. He didn't come as an incarnate being. He came as a spirit. Sometimes, in fact, there is a book called, a Gnostic book called The Acts of John, where John is supposedly speaking, and he said, sometimes I touched him, Jesus, and he felt real, and other times... My hand went right through him, as if he was a spirit. And so what's important about Jesus for most Gnostics is that he was a great teacher. He enables you to realize who you are, that innate in you is a divine being. So those are the really the, the essence of various Gnostic groups. And as I say, there are, there's a variety of them. There's the Valentinians, the Marcionites, the Carpocratians, uh, there's one guy, uh, Mark, who claimed to be able to, uh, he actually used his teaching for illicit purposes. Uh, he said, uh, when I kiss you, I'll actually give you the spirit. <laughs> and you can imagine what he was up to and uh, et cetera. And uh, so these, these people caused all kinds of trouble. But when they, when they joined the church, they did, some of them. Uh, You'd ask them, so when were you saved? And what you mean by that is, when did you realize that you were a sinner in need of our Lord, of a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ? What they will understand that to mean, when did I realize who I really was? Well, I was saved, you know, such and such. And who saved you? Well, Jesus did. What you mean by that is, the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. What they mean by that is Jesus, the great teacher, opened my eyes to realize who I really am. Now, you might think this is all far-fetched, but uh, there is a teacher called Eckhart Tolle, uh, E-C-K-H-A-R-T, and then Tolle, T-O-L-L-E. He was a banker in England. I think he might have been either a banker or he's on the stock stock market. And in the early 90s, he was fed up with a rat race, and he decided to take two years off. Obviously, he had enough money, and uh, he used to go out, uh, there's a part of London near the British Museum that has some beautiful little squares. You'll, you'll walk a few blocks, and then you've got this little kind of square with a, a park in it, and benches, and he would sit regularly in these parks, and one day he realized, he said, I came to the realization, I was God. And what he what he would mean by that is he, he doesn't mean he's he's the God who made everything, but he realized that in here is innate deity. Uh, that he really in his real person he was part of God. And he gave up banking or whatever he was doing, and he moved out to British Columbia. And the world probably would have forgotten about him, but somehow he wrote a book, and Oprah Winfrey read the book and brought him on the show. And um, his book skyrocketed. And he he, becomes one of, uh, he became one of Oprah's gurus. And it, it is straight up Gnosticism. He basically argues, your body is just a shell. It's not really you. And death liberates you, frees you from this shell, and you or your spirit will be able to go back and join God. And it's just straight up second century Gnosticism. Of course, with an early 21st century twist, I, I was in a Walmart about three years ago, and I wish I'd bought this. I saw a book by Eckhart Tolle on daily wisdom and uh, daily wisdom from your pets. <laughs> and I should have bought it because <laughs> that way I could prove my point. Maybe I could probably find it online. He says, the first thing in the morning, after you've had your morning coffee, what do you do? You've got to get a cat or a dog, and you've got to sink, your soul into the eyes of your cat and dog. Just look into them, and drink in the wisdom. And um, we have three cats, and one of them, uh, Kiri, he's very smart. (laughs) That that is the last last thing I'm going to be doing, though, in the morning, as part of my morning quiet time. Is staring in the eyes of Kiri, as if he would even sit still long enough for me to do that. It's just—it's typical early 21st century, kind of environmental, you know, love of pets, and I love cats, and uh, I think we should take care of the environment, etc. But it's—it's just—it's bonkers, is really what it is. But otherwise, it's just first-century Gnosticism. And uh, uh, Gnosticism was a plague upon the church. And the church had to fight against Gnosticism, number of books written. Uh, next week, we're going to look at Irenaeus and one of the books that he wrote against Gnosticism. And what he would argue is that Gnostics come along, and uh, they, take, they take the Christian teaching, which say it depicts God as king. And they rearrange it, and they make God out to be a fox. In other words, they take Christian teaching, and they don't preserve its shape. They don't preserve its heart. They take this bit, that bit, combine it here and there, and they end up with something that is completely different from the gospel. And that, that truth is very important, not only against Gnosticism, but also against uh, certain people claiming to be Christians today who take gospel gospel truths and rearrange them you know to, to, to produce something completely different and antithetical to the gospel but let's stop here and then uh, next week we'll pick up with Aaron S. Any questions? Yeah. <clears throat> oh good yeah I was going to mention that and um, uh, I think there are probably two or three routes. There's definitely a Jewish route because some of the Gnostics are into food laws. First Timothy four mentions people into food laws. Uh, some of it comes from basic Greek teaching. In basic Greek teaching, the goal of life is to get rid of the body. And the body is a hindrance. So if you read Plato, Plato Plato argues that the the the, the, the truly wise person, when he dies, he will eventually get rid of he will finally get rid of his body. If you don't live according to wisdom, you get reborn until you you truly learn how to live a wise wise life, and then you can junk the body. So some of it's very, very much from from Greek. The Greeks had a saying called, the Greek is soma sema, uh, S-O-M-A, S-E-M-A. Soma, the body, sema is a tomb. And I I think some pagan Greek thinking has played a major role in Gnosticism. But I think some of, some of it also has some Jewish roots. And the Jewish roots, I think, come from the failure of the, the Jews in the Jewish war. Quite a number of Jews invested heavily in the war against the Romans between 66 and 73. And when Jerusalem fell and then finally Masada, they basically gave up on politics completely and withdrew into a world of the spirit, so to speak. So, some, I think it's got both Jewish and uh, pagan roots.
1: I've often wondered um, what the relationship is between Hinduism and Gnosticism.
0: Because there's a lot of
1: carryovers.
0: Yeah. And whether
1: Hindus influence people like Plato or he influenced them. Can
0: yeah. Light on that? Yes. Um, if you'd asked me probably two or three years ago, I would have said probably no influence. But I've rethought that. Because the Greek, the Romans were trading with uh, India. They would sail down the Gulf of Aqaba, cross that part of the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, and they, there was regular trading with eastern India, uh, western India rather, places like you know Mumbai, Goa, etc. And then there's the Silk Road. So I, I don't think you can easily discount, because when you read Gnosticism, it sounds just like contemporary Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, the, the, the despising of the body, the exaltation of the soul at the expense of the material realm, and uh,
1: the real you is
0: divine. The real you is divine. So I saw a magazine in a, a store the other day, and it was ba- is a woman's magazine, and it was basically realize the innate goddess in you. And I'm thinking, like, really? Like, does it? You're a It is. Yeah. That we're all, we, we are all gods and goddesses. But uh, no, we're creatures and designed to worship and know the true living God. But that's, that's a very good question. And it's one that I, as I say, I've changed my, my thinking on um, because of my realization in recent years of the significant amount of trade that the Romans were doing. And when you trade with people, you're not only trading goods, but ideas. Yeah. But I, I...
1: Buddhism would, would that have been well been a well defined thing at that point?
0: Buddhism definitely is. Buddhism is five hundred years old. Right. Hinduism is a mishmash, yeah. and uh, yeah. but I, th- I think the Buddhist influence is even probably even more likely stronger. Right. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so next week what I want to do then uh, is look at Irenaeus and how does. How does a Christian respond to this? And we'll see three or four ways in which Irenaeus responds, which I think are very helpful for us today to think about how do we respond to people who are heretics uh, today. Okay, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, again, we are thankful to you for the truth that you've given us in Holy Scripture. And we do pray that in our our time and in our lives, we might be faithful to what you have handed on to us, to hand it on to those who have come after us, that we might walk according to the truth and help future generations know you, the true and living God. May your peace be our portion this night. For Christ's sake, amen.